0: Chapter 3 The Long Goodbye Episode 13 Fiddler's Green Halfway down the trail to hell, in a shady meadow green, are the souls of all dead troopers camped near a good old time canteen. And this eternal resting place is known as Fiddler's Green. After we flew our aircraft to the boneyard, turned in our equipment, and transferred our guys to their next assignments— 717 stood down. The unit guidon traveled to Texas, where it now flies over an airfield of Apaches. Death, in fact, still rides. Whether it was back to Rucker for an airframe transition or something else, everyone left Fort Campbell to move on to their next assignments. Colonel Blackman left 159th and headed to D.C. for his next assignment.
1: Yeah, so I uh left brigade command and I had been tapped to go to the Joint Staff um to J5 Plans and Policy, which is something I wanted to do. I'd had uh, I had been uh Major General Jeff Colts uh S3 and he had served in uh, the Plans and Policy division. Actually the same office that I was going to. And um, I really was interested in it. We used to run PT in the morning and hit talk about it. And I've always been a plans guy. It's always really come easy to me. I, I enjoyed it. So this opportunity came, and I, uh, as the chief of Joint Operational War Plans Division, uh, which essentially focuses on. Our war plans, geographic combatant commander war plans, and posture, how we posture u s forces globally, so I, I love the strategy stuff. I had gone to National War College, which at national you don't do any operational war stuff, everything' strategy and policy, and so uh, it was kind of in my wheelhouse and I really enjoyed it, but while I was there, um, you know a lot of things came together I've been gone a lot, and the um, you know, six out of 12 years gone. And I was unhappy with the administration. Um, we were really struggling uh, between DOD and the executive branch. <laughs> um, there wasn't a lot of trust there, us and them, either way. And so I, I was really torn with DC. And I knew if if I were to be selected for promotion, I, I other than being a, deputy commanding general, there weren't a lot of one-star jobs I wanted. Uh, Again, uh, assuming that I was selected, um, I started driving home every day and thinking, do I want to look back 10 years from now and say I've missed all my kids' lives? I have four kids. My oldest two, I missed their entire high school. And you don't get a redo. And so all, all of these things kind of factored in, came together to make a decision to uh to go ahead and start a new chapter about that same time i released pale horse it opened a lot of doors it was a bestseller um i started speaking and it seemed to really um garner a lot of interest with people and i had a lot of people saying hey why don't you do this professionally and i did not want to go into the defense industry i had no desire to do that um i really wanted a change and i really wanted to control my own destiny and so I decided to try that and it, and it kind of took off and worked out and led to a lot of different things, not just speaking and writing more books, but uh, now managing partner in a consulting firm and helping leaders of everything from uh, initially a lot of family businesses, a lot of, you know, businesses from five to 50 million in revenue and now doing a lot of, you know, Fortune 500 companies.
0: He might have retired from the military, but Colonel Blackman is by no means slowing down. If he isn't traveling for conferences, he's putting miles on his road bike, making survival how-to guide videos for YouTube, or writing poetic thoughts for everyone's Facebook feed. If you're interested in reading any of Colonel Blackman's written work, you can find all of his books on Amazon. Gary left in December of 2014 to head back to Rucker, and start the Air Cavalry Leader's Course, an effort to retain some of the institutional knowledge cavalrymen gained over the preceding decades. But eventually, he made the decision to retire after 28 years of service.
2: Well, I think it was December. I had my farewell. And I kind of knew it was my retirement party at the same time. Because I was going to go to Rucker, and I really wasn't sure how this was going to work out. Uh, I just knew I was going to give it a shot, and uh, I, I kind of really wanted to build this course to keep the the, the legacy of the cab going, because the 64-guy mentality is not the same as a 58 mentality. Um, So said said my farewell to everybody. Uh, I bought a camper and moved to Rucker, and I lived in a camper for about a year. And during that time period, I, I took a hard look at everything, and uh, I decided that it was uh, based on the promotion rates to W five, um, probably wasn't going to survive this, you know. So uh, that's when I decided to get out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I still love the army. You know, I think I got out right. I, I mean, if I could tell you anything, I think I I left, I left on a high note. I left on a high note because of you guys. I mean, the, the success that seven seventeen had. I've seen guys get out they try to they they stay too long they're passed over they're passed over now they're angry with the army and I didn't want to leave the army that way uh, I wanted to leave it on a like I still love it I still love it to this day
0: Gary went on to get a job flying for a company that provides EMS helicopter services He flies in southwest Tennessee has a small farm with a couple of cows and some chickens he said he needed enough work to keep him busy so he stays out of trouble, but knowing Gary, he's probably still getting in just enough trouble to have fun. Brody left 717 and went to transition into the Apache. After his transition, he went to Fort Drum for his next assignment. However, the years of wearing a uniform caught up to him, and he ended up needing knee surgery. It put him on a slight delay for a deployment. So after his recovery, he went to see the flight doc to get cleared to go downrange. But that appointment took an unexpected turn.
3: And he looked at me and he was like, well, first off, you're not deploying. So go ahead and get that out of your head. And he said, second off, I don't think you're going to fly anymore. And so as you can imagine, by the time that that appointment was over, we were talking about med boards. So I walked into that appointment thinking, sweet, I'm gonna get my upslip and I'll be on a plane in 12 days to go over to Korea to after that hour-long conversation was over, holy cow, I might never fly again. You know? And so that was how I spent the tail end of those three years. Was uh, you know, for about the last year of my career, I was I was dealing with all that mess. And uh it came down to the knee a little bit, but more than anything, back and neck issues. And, and he was basically just like, if you keep flying, you're not going to be able to walk in five years. So you need to ride off into the sunset. So I guess you could say the end of my Army career was a huge punch in the gut between the Kiowa going away and then being told I wasn't going to fly anymore and, and medically retired from the Army.
0: Since medically retiring from service, Brody and his amazing wife Amanda moved back to South Carolina. Brody is now a financial advisor, which kind of cracks me up. I have a hard time picturing him wearing a suit and tie to work every day. They've added two new baby boys to their passel of kids, and Amanda, I promise, we're going to come visit y'all as soon as we can. Dave also made a transition to the Apache when he left Seven Seventeen.
4: So then, I uh, became an Apache pilot, and then went straight, basically straight from the Apache course to the Apache MTP course. Um, so I barely know how to fly this thing, and now I'm test flying it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then I uh, I fight like crazy uh, with the uh, the EFMP, the Exceptional Family Member program, to be stationed here at um, Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. Um, so I get here, I get here a couple of months before we deploy to Europe for something called Operation Atlantic Resolve, where we're training with NATO allies. Um, that was, it was an interesting thing. Uh, I got to operate in 10 different countries with NATO allies from all over the place. Um, but it really was a, it was a difficult deployment. Um, there were a lot of frustration for me, um, it was not a combat deployment, and so we did some cool things, but uh, largely I was very frustrated with that nine months. Um, I, I felt like where we went and what we did was not what was I don't know sold to us, or or most of what we saw and what we did wasn't necessarily what we told what we were told we were. Going to do or who we were going to be training with, or so forth. It was, it was frustrating. Um, I I found myself wondering, uh, what am I doing here? Um, my my little girl is autistic, and she has she as far as if anybody is you know familiar with autism, there is a a very wide spectrum of what that means, right? Um, my little girl doesn't, so she's eight now. Um, she does, she still doesn't talk. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of things that she does not do. Um, like a, like a, a a typical developing child, right? Or we have a six year old son who is typical developing and the, the difference between the two of them is could not be more fast. Um, so being away from when i 'm away for specifically long periods of time those that issue or those issues specifically with with her um begin to compound on the rest of the family right and then that weighs on me while i 'm gone and I remember being really frustrated with <laughs> with 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 being in europe um but not really feeling like I was accomplishing anything or doing anything and knowing that I had left my wife with that um you know Annabella who's my daughter goes to therapy or or went to therapy every single day after school my wife would pick her up and take her to one of three different therapies and so the days are very long there's no help for her she has, also has to deal with my son who, what do you do with him while his sister is in speech therapy or occupational therapy or whatever, you know, there's only so many books you can read. There's only so many things you can do. He just, um, the whole, the, anyway, the, uh, the whole situation is difficult and it it is a, a huge stressor on our life. And the more that I'm gone for it, the worse it becomes. Um, and so I was frustrated by knowing that I left my family, knowing that I left my wife for that or with that, and not, not even being able to explain to her why what what am I doing there, so that began to really erode my um my job satisfaction uh, as well as you know truth be told and, and i i sound uh I know how this can sound um because I don't want to come off as ungrateful. Um, that I that I was selected to have a transition, um, but the same token, I did not. The more I flew the Apache, the more I knew I didn't want to fly the Apache. Um, and that, you know, uh, I guess that all took its toll on me too. It it ended up that I, I came home from that Europe deployment, if you want to call it that, and. I just realized that I was, uh, I was spending my time in places that I, I didn't want to spend it, and and w- what I thought I was getting the return for for my, uh, my efforts, my absence, my all that was taking a serious toll on my family, and it wasn't really worth it anymore.
0: Dave left the active army fifteen years into his career. He and Tessa were able to move closer to their extended family this past summer. They're enjoying, as Dave tells me, the dry heat of Arizona. He started flying for SkyWest as a commercial airline pilot just a few weeks after he got out. If you ever hear, coming from the flight deck, that you're on board with a pilot by the name of Stark, you know you're in good hands. He still puts his uniform on from time to time as a National Guardsman for the Arizona National Guard. Jeff didn't get an airframe transition, but he found a new job in the Unmanned Aerial Systems, or UAS, world.
5: Uh, Your options are to stay with the co until it dies and get put out at the 17-year mark as you get passed over twice for um, W-4 with no retirement, or you can go UAS, put in a a request for personal action or or a 4187 to go to the UAS or 150U course. Um, So, thinking I felt like I kind of deserved a retirement after four deployments for four years in different countries. Um, I went ahead and put in a 4187 uh, to go UAS.
0: In typical Jeff fashion, he couldn't just do like a normal UAS thing. He had to go and prove how big and strong and tough he is. So he decided to assess into the Ranger Regiment to work with their UAS teams. As he pointed out to me, he's a man in his 30s with over a decade in the Army, and he's still successfully assessed into this elite unit, a long guy's much, much younger. But in the end, I'm glad Jeff was there. As his family dealt with the difficult transition of divorce, the special operations community offered him the kind of support I'm not sure he would have found elsewhere.
5: Uh, I got to serve with some amazing human beings. Uh, Billy Graham's grandson was my executive officer. He has since left to take over the family business. Franklin Graham's son. Um, uh, several prominent names stick out, but I mean Harvard grads. I had I had a Georgia Tech grad in my shadow platoon as a specialist. I'm like, you have a degree from Georgia Tech. You're a specialist in the Ranger Regiment, flying shadows. That's that's cool. Um, well, my family, like about August of 2018, uh, my my ex-wife asked me to leave. Um, at that point, I went through some bad times, uh, but I had a lot of great counselors there at the Ranger Regiment. The R-psych and the Ranger chaplains are the best in the world. And I also had uh, my family and my church to lean on. Got me through it. Not not only did I had I reached a pinnacle of, of professionalism in my craft, but I'd also reached a pinnacle of, of um, lack of humility, when you feel that bravado in myself, um, to where I just thought I was better than I really was, I guess, as a human being. And there, there were some things in my life that, that God needed to work out, and part of that was, was my marriage felt failing, failing or falling apart, um, and choices I'd made in my past. But uh, I think mean, there was some growth that needed to happen, and some and you know it's hard to be humble in the Ranger Regiment. Range. Uh, let's just be honest. You put on that tambourine and, and put on scrolls on both sleeves, and you are you are conditioned to believe you are a badass. But I was fortunately coming from what I had gone through able to to still recognize that, you know, I'm just a human like everybody else and we all have good days and bad days and we all mess up and we mess up we gotta we gotta tell people we messed up and be honest about it or we won't heal from it. But I think that was my my personal coming out of it was there's Uh, As long as you're breathing, you're going to be okay. And that's something they try to teach you in, like, master resiliency training that that I never got. Uh, But fortunately, I was around some Rangers who had.
0: During his time in the Ranger Regiment and while finalizing his divorce, Jeff met Jennifer. They married as soon as they could and are settled happily in Lower Alabama. Jeff will finish out his career in uniform at Fort Rucker. He's there now as a platoon leader, of all things. He plans on retiring from the active force, but staying around Rucker to teach flight school students how to fly. I asked all our cowboys to share what being a cavalryman meant, what it means to wear a Stetson and Spurs, what it means to have flown the Kiowa.
4: You know, I I am forever grateful that I got that opportunity. Um... I feel like, you know, uh, what it meant was, I was I was expected to take bold and audacious action in the face of the enemy, um, and to you know to, to always remember that that who who and what you're there to do, like who you're there to support, and and why, um, and and that is the only mission that you that's the only mission you have it's the only reason you go flying. Is is supporting the guy on the ground and doing anything that you can uh, to uh, you know to support him and his mission and his efforts. So, um, again, that that situational curiosity and that uh, desire, that that willingness to take that that bold, audacious action, um, that is what I think of when I think of a cavalryman. I counted myself very lucky, uh, to be a, uh, to be a scout pilot and to be among, uh, those that also were the, I think the, the mission of a scout pilot really is only understood fully by somebody who's, who's lived it and done it and understands the, the kind of what it takes. And then the, um, And, uh, again, I, I count myself very lucky to have done it and to have been there.
1: Um, it comes back to the people and, you know, the cavalry attracts a certain breed of people. And I think I told you early on in this that, you know, I was going infantry. There was no question. And I went to a pre-camp in Fort Riley, Kansas, 1989 or so. And, um, I saw the Air Calvary, and the thing that appealed to me was was not the Stetson and Spurs, but the latitude they had to go out and develop the situation, that they were intent-based, which is what I preach to businesses today and what good businesses do well is – you know, clear commander's intent, a strategy, a vision, and then empower subordinates to go out and execute. And that really appealed to me. So I came back and I went cavalry, and that was the most rewarding thing at the end of the career in my career. And you know, I, I I used to be known well when I was in Pale Horse Six or just saying I'd say cavalry ain't about horse shit and gunpowder, it's about standards. And, uh, you know, consistently meet our own standards, perform to the standards we've set out in the cab every day. That's what makes you different from any other organization out there. And I truly believe that. And that's what was very rewarding to me was to be able to pull the, you know, the guys that you've had on this show, you know, that and, and just paint them a picture. Tell them a story of what I want to happen, what, you know, the ideal outcomes would be. And then let them go execute. Just empower them and trust them, and then they come back and just amaze you with incredible work. That that was as fulfilling as anything I've ever done as a leader in the army.
2: Out front, unafraid, underpowered, overweight—that's what you are. Yeah. So a cavalryman is audacious, you know, at best. You know, just such a blessed person that I got to do it. Um. I think in the end, the Army is going to have to go figure out, I mean, literally, they're going to have to find another scout helicopter. The silver lining of this, I was to talk about it, and I, I have made the, the, the best friends I've ever had or will ever have. I still talk to guys, and they're not all 58 guys through the years in the Army.
5: It's just protecting the ground force. That's it. Like, I spent my my young years
6: being the ground force. And all, you know, ranger school or whatever it was in my young years, I know that as an aviator, like, we sing that fucking song about the best. Like, I'm not here for me. I'm here for that guy on the ground right there so I need to know where he is, I need to know where the bad guys are, and I need to either put munitions on the bad guys, or I need to use my radio to call munitions on the bad guy, or if I'm an HH guy, I need to get into his position to get his wounded out, or if I'm a 47 guy, I need to, I don't know, sling a, a 777 in there to so that I can drop 155 on the bad guys down range, like. At the end of the day, as an army aviator, your only concern should be for what the ground guy needs. Finding the bad guys before the bad guys find you. Like having those Yosarian Solanos that are in your formation that give you the knowledge to go out and and figure out where, you know, what what is the most likely course of action and what what is the most dangerous course of action. And if I can stop the enemy before he does either one of those, then I've succeeded. And then, because you do have guns, like getting getting to that troops in contact and saving somebody from taking a bullet to the chest, I consider it,
3: you know, such an honor uh, to be able to say that I was part of the Kiowa community. You know, when when I was in Second Ranger Battalion there's such a brotherhood there and you know second ranger battalion and 717 cav uh were obviously different things but I never thought that I would find that brotherhood again once I left ranger regiment um and finding that again in 717 uh and it truly was you know a brotherhood Sisterhood mixed in, you know however you wanna say it, but uh it it meant a lot to have that again um and until I left seven seventeen and you know they they one five one five ninth went away, and then we all moved out in different directions and everybody landed wherever they landed. I didn't realize uh how amazing that unit was and how close we were and how we were literally like brothers and sisters to one another uh, in that unit. It was definitely a special unit. And there's a lot of reasons for it. One, obviously because of the background of a lot of the people that were in that unit, a large percentage across the board, regardless regardless of, of what unit you're talking to, a large part of the Kiowa community were once ground guys. And I think having that experience prior to made it different the CAV, um, because that mission that we had supporting the ground guys, you'd been down there, and so it just made you work harder, and and you had those shared experiences with the guys down there, and uh, and also, you know, a large part of the people that were in the air with you, it'll, it'll always be one of my absolute highlights in my life that I was in 717 CAV and and flew the Kyle. It just meant everything to be able to to do that.
0: At the end of my conversation with Gary, after I asked him what it meant to have been part of 717, he asked me the same question. What it meant to me to have been part of the CAV. I could only come up with this. It took me a long time to get over the 717 I walked away from, the dream of a career I had lost. But the 717 I walked into has forever changed me for the better. I owe so much of who I am today to the men and women of 717 CAV. The gals I went and got pedicures with on the weekends, both of us uniquely able to have preferences on nail polish colors while also complaining of 12-mile ruck marches and gunnery ranges. The guys who were unfazed by a woman nearly a decade their junior and inferior in experience leading them. The warrant officers and maintainers, who were patient with me while I learned the ropes, let me make some honest mistakes, but kept me from making any of the big ones. I owe so much of who I am to each and every one of these experiences I had with these cavalry men and women. Being part of the CAV, to me, meant so many things, but above all, it meant an opportunity to learn from the best about what it meant to really fly. I'm so honored I had the time I did with the people I did. I know that there are quite a few Air Cav guys and gals out there listening, so I asked our Cowboys if they had anything special they wanted to say to y'all.
5: I mean, I'm not in contact with everybody that i served with, but man, I hope they're all doing great out there in the whatever they're doing in the world. Um, and if any of them ever need anything, uh, I'm down here at Bravo Company running flight school, so they can feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm on Facebook and most of them probably still have my phone number. If um, they just ever need to come fish on my pond, you know it's, it's right here, thirty minutes from from Fort Rucker. Come hunt deer, walk around the farm, and just chill out and stare at the trees. That's what I like to do. But, um, and that I mean, that goes for the entire Kiowa community. You don't have to be a 717 member if you're a, a former scout and you need some some relaxing time or a place to camp. I've had guys just come out and pitch a tent on the farm um they're always welcome. Uh
4: so something that I I didn't really take the time while I was there or didn't really um have the opportunity when I left 717 cuz truthfully a lot of my mentors were already gone. Um they had either left before me or they had retired or they whatever. Um I just I would say thank you to them, you know, like uh like Gary, you've, you've had Gary on your podcast and you've talked to him several times. Gary is the the guy who progressed me. Um, I remember very well him being just so, so busy um, with just nothing but progressions and him hammering through them and then, <laughs> you know, uh, us being at, it's like 2010 and we're at Fort Bliss, Texas. And I barely know how to fly a helicopter. I don't think I've flown in like six months or something like that. And we're up there flying in the seven thousand, you know, seven or eight thousand foot mountains. And we're landing on these ridgelines. And I'm white knuckling the cyclic because I have no idea what I'm doing at this point. And he's over there humming the Marine Corps hymn. And <laughs> and uh, you know, just being just being Gary as he's as he's trying to teach me. Um, and I, I, what I loved about him was that like the, he tried to keep it kind of airy in, in the cockpit and then he was, but he was really, really good. He was, Gary is an incredible scout pilot and I learned a lot from him, especially that first, um, deployment in Afghanistan. Um, you know, I got to fly with some other, uh, some other dudes that I learned a lot from as well, you know, Paul McNeil and, and, uh, Steve Brousseau. Um, Chris Bassett and Chris Klusicek, uh, I, I learned a lot from those guys and I appreciated them. Um, and I guess something I never got to say, or I didn't say was, was thank you for the mentorship and, and, the, you know, what you gave me then. And it, it served me well for a lot of years and it continues to do so. I guess
1: the first thing I should express is gratitude. It was, um, it was an honor uh, to be a part of uh, this, you know, brotherhood, and and of course that is that is either sex. <laughs> I I, uh, I enjoyed my female cavalrymen just as much as the males, and and it, it was just a unique group of people, tribe of people, I guess that that those who hung around, those who who really became cavalrymen down and you know deep in their bones, it was because. Um, It meant something to them, like I previously mentioned, this this special group of people that uh, go out and and just have situational curiosity. And I've been saying this since the UAV started. um, it, It it can't do what a human can do. And so how we strike that balance of, you know, Calvary is a state of mind. It's a it's a way of thinking. And it's hard to replicate that with with an unmanned system. And so, and and it's hard to replicate that with an Apache that's very difficult to conduct reconnaissance out of. I I don't, if anybody refutes that, I I would entertain, I'd love to talk to you. I I did this for a little while. (laughs) It's it's the guy that flies over five farmers sitting on the ground and says, I wonder why they're not wearing sandals. I don't see sheep. I wonder where that trail goes. I'm going to find out. In fact, I'm going to take a picture and I'm going to map this landscape. And I wonder what's significant down that valley in Pakistan. They had to come from there to get here. And he just keeps thinking in a way that is unique to us in this community and he he's going to find it out and he'll assume risk for that. And in pale horse, I tried to tell a story about Scott Stradley that I don't know that I did it justice. We were, we were in the back of the Waterpour Valley one day and, uh, just, just a team of Kiowas. And, uh, we had followed some trails in from the backside. Then we came back around and, and we're in there and, and we started getting shot at and Scott kept getting lower. And I'm like, hey, dude, we're in the back of the waterfall. There's no one here to come and get us. He said, I've almost figured out where they're at. <laughs> and he, he just kept getting lower. But it's that way of thinking of I have to solve the problem. I have to provide the critical intelligence. That's the potential. Uh, all of that to say, don't lose that mentality. Don't let that die or, or we'll lose the Calvary.
3: I would say that I love them all and I would thank them for the experiences that I got to experience with them uh, because the people make experiences most of the time. Um, And so I would, I would thank them for that. And I'd always also say that uh, we had a lot of fun. And we flew that sucker the way it was supposed to be flown. I just, yeah, I mean, I love them all, and and thank you, and God bless you for doing things the way that you did. You know, it was it didn't hold anything back. Let's take the fight to the enemy. And I want to say specifically to the leadership, thank you so much for letting us be the calf, and. Letting us do the things that the Cav was supposed to do. You know, we were very serious about what we did and and wanted to do everything we possibly could to do the best, you know, for whoever it was we were supporting. But man, our leadership let us, you know, let us have some fun. And, uh, that was part of being in the calf, all that rich tradition and the you know sort of rough around the edges a little bit, and you know we skirted that line quite a bit, and they let us do it and uh so, I would say thank you so much to our leadership for letting us do that also
0: when we redeployed, I took command of Alpha Troop. It was more of a formality than anything, but in an effort to keep up with traditions. I had everyone over to my house for a party the afternoon of the ceremony. My parents, God bless them, drove the five hours down to help cook and prepare for the fun. I'm a big fan of honoring special moments with a bit of reflection, and I knew I wanted to say something to everyone once we all gathered, just us Alpha Troopers. So, before the party, I pulled out my grandfather's copy of The Officer's Guide from his time in Korea as an Army Lieutenant. Flipping through the pages, looking for some kind of inspiration on what to say, I found a passage called The Successful Career. What I shared with Alpha Troop then is the same thing I hope to share with all you former Kiowa drivers today. I'm not a historian. In fact, that was the section of my academic career I hated most, and in which I performed the worst. Studying battles and campaigns dates and locations, empires and insurgencies all bored me terribly. So, you must forgive me. I have done absolutely nothing to prepare a speech highlighting Alpha Troop, 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment as an entity with a historical legacy of campaigns, battles, or dates. I hope I've done so for good reason. What I did ever enjoy about history class was learning about the individuals, The one person who made the one decision to shoot the one round that disabled the guy who knew the one thing that could have saved Richmond from falling. The one king, queen, or court jester that irrevocably changed the course of history. To me, the people were the fascinating parts. As we stand here, beers in hand, and face the gruesome fact that Alpha Troop, as we know her, is in fact history, let us not grieve. Let us not fear that all who have sacrificed under this guidon, or their memories, will wash away with the sands of time. We all own a piece of the history we've shared, and I for one, even when I'm wrinkled and old like Jeff Cowan, will never forget the individuals who have collectively made our history. I've been humbled day in and day out by each and every one of you. I had a mentor of mine once implore me to reflect often on meaningful events, people, and experiences. As I reflect now, on not just my time in this piece of history, but on all those before me and before us, I'm left with nothing but gratitude. My grandfather's copy of the 18th edition of The Officer's Guide, published in 1952, was given to me several years ago as my grandmother cleaned out some of her old belongings. I think it was kind of a joke, but in it, I have found more meaningful guidance than any current doctrine on officership because today we're seemingly more concerned with command-supply discipline and training calendars than true blue leadership. In the chapter about career planning exists a section titled The Successful Career. It states, The foregoing discussion has pertained to factors in securing a successful career. As other writers have done, there has been a glib reference to the road upward to a high position as if it were an easily recognized as the end of a journey and that the goal itself is readily selected. What is this goal? How can we be certain that we will recognize it when it has been attained or that it will prove satisfactory when attained? Is the mere assignment to a high command or staff position success in itself? Or is it necessary to also achieve a high grade to be a general? Or does true success lie above and beyond these considerations, and to be found only in our own hearts where there can be conviction that we have served our country well in whatever assignments have come to us, the minor with the large? But we are forgetting the small things, which are of the higher importance. No officer can consider himself a success unless he has been a good soldier citizen, unless if he heads a family, He has been a good husband and father, a good friend to his friends with a wide span of acquaintances who respect him and wish him well, unless he has taken all things in his stride and completed them credibly, unless he has dared to attempt the impossible, or on occasion, take a course different from that of his fellows. In the twilight of career, the officer who can look back upon it and say to himself and believe it, I've done a good job. I've done the best I could in all my assignments. Some of them were more flashy than others, and a few have contributed in a material manner to the future progress of the Army. My friends are legion, and I have attained the goodwill of my associates, both juniors and seniors, and civilians. My family has enjoyed a good life, and they think well of me. When such an officer reaches the time of retirement, whatever his grade or decorations on his chest, he may leave the active list With contentment and satisfaction in his heart. He has been a success. He has planned his career well. He has served his country nobly. As we all prepare to scatter to the four winds and Alpha Troop becomes but a memory, I feel it necessary to inform you all that your careers have been a success. You're the husbands and wives that your families adore. You're the responsible citizens of which this country is made. You're the friends your friends respect and admire. And you can walk away from this organization saying, I've done a good job. No matter where your next path may take you, know that as you walk away from this one, I am proud of the soldiers you are, but above all else, the people you are. There is no rank, position, or rating that could ever mean more than this. You have served your country nobly, not because of the airframe you flew, but because of the character with which you flew it. I hope that for anyone listening that never heard of the Kiowa, never knew it flew over the deserts of Iraq or the mountains of Afghanistan, you now know a little more about the men and women who wore flight suits and called themselves cavalrymen. I hope that for anyone listening who will never forget the Kiowa, I hope you have found some peace about the whole endeavor. I hope you heard some of your own experiences in the stories we've shared. I hope you'll feel inspired to find your own ways of capturing your time as a cavalryman, whether it's in a recorded interview, you write it down in a Word document, or you put pen to paper and mold a song. I promise you'll find solace knowing it still lives. As we've heard every one of our cowboys say, The cavalry is steeped in history. One piece of that is the poem titled Fiddler's Green. It feels like the most fitting end for this series, the death of the Kiowa. Halfway down the trail to hell in a shady meadow green are the souls of all dead troopers camped near a good old-time canteen, and this eternal resting place is known as Fiddler's Green. Marching past straight through hell, the infantry are seen, accompanied by the engineers, artillery, and marines, for none but the shades of cavalrymen dismount at Fiddler's Green. Though some go curving down the trail to seek a warmer scene, no trooper ever gets to hell, ere he's emptied his canteen, and so rides back to drink again with friends at Fiddler's Green." And so when man and horse go down beneath a sabre keen, or in a roaring charge of fierce melee, you stop a bullet clean, and the hostiles come to grab your scalp, just empty your canteen, and put your pistol to your head, and go to Fiddler's Green. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our cowboys for their honesty and heart. Thank you to their families for their strength, and patience. Thank you so much to my family for the love and support. And as always, Death Rides.